You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning. Uh, Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, for this day, thank you. Um, uh, Open us now to you. Open your word to us. Um, Unstop our ears. Open our eyes so we'd see and behold you. Um, you uh, and your son given for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just a continuation of last week, um, really kind of stepping midstream where we left off. Uh, images from Easter. I need to make sure we get to Easter and don't stop in the tomb on Holy Saturday. Um, uh, uh, just a short two-week class. Um, what's the intention here? Um, uh, we'll read the scripture, kind of staying with Luke. Um, I thought we might get to Emmaus. I know we're not getting there. Uh, and that's where uh, the story of the, the, the walk of the disciples to Emmaus happens only in Luke. Um, that's kind of what started us there and then backing up. But just trying to take a couple of images. Um, there'll be a couple of artists today uh, with, uh, with Hans Holbein and his portrait of the dead Christ in the tomb. Um, use that also as uh, as Fyodor Dostoevsky. We might look a little bit there. He was just absolutely taken by that painting, and it became a real, almost a protagonist in his novel, The Idiot. Um, he was so taken by it. And so we use some of that, just some images there. Another one from a, uh, a Spanish artist named Montaigne, who I don't know anything about, but I always look to my friend Cumby, who taught art history for years and actually knows what she's talking about. And so... If she'll, uh, if she'll chime in, it would be great. Um, often called the foreshortened Christ. And just kind of sit in Saturday as we, we, we get to the reality. On the third day, he rose um, bodily. I mean, he came out of the tomb. And if we would have been, some of us were there. Mike, so I was just thinking of the, the different tombs. If you, I mean, I'm almost crying right now. If you would have been there, uh, on, I don't know, 5.53 a.m. on a Sunday morning in Jerusalem, and you were in the tomb, and there was this, I mean, and and, and I'm going to go a little bit graphic today, a mutilated corpse, which is why Jesus had to uh, become obedient even unto death, even death on a cross, as Paul will say in Philippians 2. Why is that even death on a cross? He couldn't just pass away of consumption. He couldn't just sort of die in his sleep, a peaceful death uh, of you know something that takes us, whatever it is, whether it's a disease or just old age. He had to be brutally murdered um, and hung on a tree, as Paul would also pick up from Deuteronomy. Um, Cursed is everyone who would die on a tree so that he would become sin for us. And so this bloodied, mutilated, ripped, shredded corpse you would have heard, <gasps> I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the, 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 the amino acids, we'll look at this poem too if we get there. Um, well, it's in there. You can at least take it home. Um, as John Updike said, rekindled. Our faith is the only one, at least amongst the religions, you know, Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, Shinto, American Indian, pagan, you know, whatever you want to look at. We're the one that's historically based. You know, you know, show me the bones. And, you know, I say this almost not every week, probably every fourth class. Uh, and I'm somewhere else on Sunday morning. 
You know, it's just it's not here. You know, we can we can look for transcendence in some other things, which is helpful. But ours is based on the historical reality. You know, in history, in a place, at a time, at a certain moment, you heard the breath go into the lungs again, and then the stone was rolled away. Like we heard two weeks ago, I love that part right before "Welcome, Happy Morning." It's that programmatic piece where the there's the the swelling and the timpani rolls, and all of a sudden Fred starts playing the the bells on the uh, on the organ, and it's that's the rekindling of the amino acids. And then you hear the stone roll away, and it oh, welcome. I mean, it's just like yes, I believe, I believe. You know, that's where we are. But we've got to go into the tomb first. Last week. You know, we watched um, uh, with three artists how Christ was crucified um, with a Rembrandt piece, uh, 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 another Spanish, no, Danish, Jansons, don't know anything about him except it was a really interesting piece. And then um, then Nikolai Gay, the Russian author, uh, painter. painter. Um, Today we're going into the tomb. So uh, all four Gospels, they don't say a lot um, together sometimes, but all four Gospels, named Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin or of the council, who was a, uh, a righteous man, who was a seeker after God, perhaps we say even a believer. Um, he and Nicodemus are the two that are sort of held out amongst the Sanhedrin, the ruling, the ruling elders, we might say, of, uh, of the Jews at the time of Jesus. Um, all four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea by name. Uh, and as you might expect, the burial of Jesus is very, very brief in all four Gospels. And we're just staying here with Luke. Three verses from Luke and at the end of chapter 23, verse 50. This is on your handout, the first page. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Interesting, he notes the Jewish town of Arimathea. You would read into that and as you're reading the scriptures. You might be like, huh, that probably means non-Jewish readers are the intended audience here. Because if they were Jewish, they would, of course it's Jewish town of Arimathea. Um, so it's the Gentiles. Luke, the Gentile, the physician, high Greek, and all that stuff. Um, writing. It's just interesting way. Just throw these out so as you're reading it on your own, it's like, huh, okay, there's a breadcrumb. I'm just kind of picking that up. So starting over, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, the body of Jesus from the cross. What would that be like? That's where I was this morning. To get really graphic again, how do you unhinge a man who's been crucified? I don't know. I, anyway, I have some ideas, and they're not pretty. Um, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down. And he wrapped it in linen, in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Um, and now Jesus, this is Friday afternoon. Um, uh, Sabbath starts on Friday night. Um, and so they were hurrying to get him down, hurrying to get him in the tomb uh, because it would not be um, lawful to handle a dead body. Uh, on the Sabbath, which starts, let's say it gets dark at 6, 5.30, they have to be finished because you need a little bit of a cushion there. Um, And they hastily get him down. And they get him put away. Um, The women say, like, we'll go there as early as we can on Sunday morning, on the morning 
when daybreak happens and Sabbath is over. Uh, and in the interim, Friday evening, all day Saturday, all Saturday night, coming into Sunday morning. That's where we are, the dead Christ in the tomb. So a couple of pieces. Um, as I mentioned, the foreshortened Christ um, by Andrea, that's his name, Andrea Mantegna, um, dead Christ, circa 1480. So I'm a Reformation guy. Um, Martin Luther, born 1486. So you can put that in there. Um, uh, the, 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 the 95 Theses, 1517. Um, Luther's writing campaign began in earnest like 1520. So about 40 years before all that happened, parts that mean something to a lot of us. Here we have uh, someone um, painting the dead Christ in the tomb. I don't think there's a lot of these out there. And Holbein's piece is going to be absolutely unique, and we'll look at that in a minute. Um, but just kind of sitting with this for a little bit, um, also sometimes called the foreshortened Christ, because the perspective written right here, where obviously you see the feet, where you start on the bottom, and you can't help but sort of you know go up, um, uh, where Christ seems very short, foreshortened because of the extreme angle, the perspective of the painter, where you've got the wounds which just leap off the page. I mean, look at how crisp they are. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, almost to the point where if you touch that skin, it feels like it would be sharp and brittle. You know, like when a, you have a, a, a callus or a, a, a blister that starts to to uh, to age, um, and you can you kind of fiddle with it. You feel the uh, the, the texture of the skin. I mean, he pulls that out where you can just see what's going on here. The, uh, the wounds, the hands, even as it were, sort of rigor mortis partly, but, but he wants to make sure you see them and he sort of tilts the hands towards us so that we see the wounds coming with Christ and you work up towards the, uh, his head. Dead and dead, you know, back, you know, tipped over. Uh, and then we start to see three figures which almost you don't see up here in the corner. Can we see that? Um, we've got three figures, which you are, go detail, I think I put that in there. I did. Um, the three people in the corner um, would be John, the apostle, um, Mary, the one who was given, you know, behold your um, uh, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And then up here, almost not seen, you can see someone crying. It would be Mary Magdalene. And we know that because of the alabaster jar that's also often associated with her in, um, in the different art. And so just staying with Mantegna, um, uh, climbing into uh, the tomb, as it were, with the dead Christ. And why are we going to stay there? Uh, yes? Is that the alabaster up there on the Here? Yeah. Um, or a jar. Um, so some of us were there. Frank, who else was there um, a couple of months ago? Yeah, Mike and Sue Ellen. In the Church of the Sepulchre, when we walked in and there were people sort of laying down, kissing that stone. This is the stone, by tradition anyway. The deposition stone, as it's sometimes called. When the body was pulled down or deposed from the cross and laid and prepared, uh, this was the idea that it would be placed in there. Um, and so that stone is there. You can go see it. Um, uh, so Mantegna's Christ in the Tomb uh, begins to pull us in um, as we think about um, uh, an indelicate phrase. I'm going to just keep saying it probably. Dead and dead. Um, uh, all the way dead. Not a swoon. 
Um, not, well, his body died, but his spirit, you know, lived, where it was some sort of Gnostic distinction um, between uh, body bad, spirit good, and so spirit was alive, and so Christ didn't really die, and you start to get into this sort of twisted uh, movement. He's as dead as, you know, my mother, or the person that you've lost, um, uh, or the person who will die tomorrow, you know. I mean, dead and dead. Christ dead in the tomb. Uh, we see that. And we feel it, I think, even more poignantly with Hans Holbein. I've taught on this several times, but it's not been in a couple of years. So, again, anchoring sort of around the Reformation. That was 1480. I mentioned 1520. Luther started... What's that? Um, uh, started in 1520. Um, this is when Holbein, uh, a German... Uh, Painter who became the court painter, in fact, for Henry VIII. Um, the paintings for Henry VIII that we know, what we think we think of Henry VIII, we have all that responsible for Holbein, a lot of his wives, and some others. Thomas More, Erasmus, very famous, very famous portraitist. Um, here's Holbein's um, Dead Christ in the Tomb. Um, uh, we can comment on both of the paintings, Montaigne's and Holbein's, in just a moment. Uh, here's how it looks in the museum, just to give you a sense of perspective because one of the reasons it's so unusual, it's as if you're looking in to a cutaway of a coffin. It's about 12 inches by 60, you know, I think it's 80 inches long. So it's just, it fits a, a six foot, five and a half foot person. I think it's 70 inches. So it'd be a five and a half foot person uh, and with a claustrophobic, just enough space to fit a body in there. Um, and so to see how it is at eye level, as well was the way he designed it to be uh, to be viewed, and so we can come in there and, and begin to sort of um, uh, be here. This writing, get here quick. It's just the the date, 1520-22. Interesting piece. I didn't follow this rabbit trail. He looks like he erased it and had to redo it. And why he did that, I don't know. But we start to just look at the body, the way it sort of begins to come around, the hair sort of as it were falling out, you know, into us, spilling over out of the coffin into our laps almost, the, uh, just the angular chin, um, the eyes, what do I have? So here's some details. Um, the angular chin, the eyes that are open and rolled back, um, the lividity that begins to set in, especially around the hands when you see the putrid uh, flesh beginning to form. I mean, he just wants to make sure there's no ambiguity, debt. The dead Christ in the tomb, Holy Saturday, the interminable waiting has begun. Um, an interesting piece, the third finger, um, uh, almost a sign. On the third day, one, two, three, um, uh, there is stuff written on the internet, the, the middle finger of Christ and all that. I mean, it's just kind of out there. It's, it's not that, although it could be, you know. Let me, let me, let me give death. Where, O oh, death, is thy victory? Where is thy sting? Um, let me mock you in the way that we often do um, in a crass way. But here it's the third day. Um, on the third day I will rise. Um, the sign, even as he was dying, I'm coming back. This is not the end. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Um, so, dead Christ in the tomb, the wounds, the putridness, um, the, uh, the horror, the horror, the horror, to quote Joseph Conrad. Um, let's stop.
let's stay in the tomb just for a minute um, with each other. Um, uh, look at some of the things up here. The date it's going to be in the MCM, whatever it is, like fifteen twenty one, I think. And then they had to snuff it out. I don't know why he did that. I, I, I didn't follow that. I don't even know that much detail. But that's this is the date. H uh, H Hans Holbein. Yep. So is this just the in the 1500s, 1400s, they decided, no, we have to be more, like you're saying, the horror. Yeah. I mean, it is just really, if he had been wrapped in a shroud, it would have helped me a little bit yeah. better. Correct. I mean, had, yeah. But he so he's painted as the tomb as he was. Right. He would have been almost certainly, of course we don't know, but it says wrapped in a shroud, that would be the burial custom, um, prepared for burial, wrapped head all the way through the toes, not mummified, but but wrapped, certainly. Shroud of Turin comes out of that and everything else, but um, the artists didn't want to do that. They wanted to show, um, here's here's the body. Um, and I think, not to go too far, but, but this is where um, Dostoevsky is going to go. To say, I mean, it, 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 it's worse than this. I mean, it's worse than this. I mean, not to go too far in the crucifixion, but like I mentioned last time, um, we think it's like a surgery or something where he puts, you know, the neat holes in his hand and in his feet. Almost certainly no. I mean, you're struggling, moving. Uh, it, it's an indelicate tool, the hammer that they would have been using, the nails. I mean, you're getting in the vague area where you get it between the radius and the ulna and the tibia and the fibula, and then you figure out how to put them up there somewhere between six hours and six days. Um, that's why they were surprised. He's already dead? You're kidding. Usually it went on so much longer. Um, yeah, for well, It had to be that bad. Cursed is those who hang on a tree. Um, read Isaiah here in a minute. But let me quickly add a coda. Um, as awful, as awful as this physical death was, it's it, it not even the worst physical death in history. Um, it may not have been the worst physical death that day with the two other criminals. I mean, Many have been crucified in other forms of just an absolute inhumane. But when God made him who knew no sin to be sin, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That separation, whatever that is, we don't understand that. But that soul anguish um, was, I mean, we dare, I, I dare say, was infinitely worse than the physical death. It's incredible. I mean, you just can't think long enough, deep enough, broad enough about the atonement. 
about how through Christ's death we are now at one with God. At tone. Um, it's a compound word. Um, a tone. To make at one. Um, and this is how it happened. How ridiculous. Almost laughable. As Paul would call it, a scandal. Foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. This scandal on that through a dead man, through a dead Christ, you would find you know, life, redemption, reconciliation, peace. Uh, the hilarity of the gospel. Um, it's crazy. Anybody else interacting? Coming? Yeah. Frank? Why are there no wounds from the scourging? Well, because he didn't paint them. <laughs> I mean, there, there would be. I mean, certainly. Um, yeah, the time before that, he was beaten, um, uh, punched. You've got the crown. Uh, and then, as, as Frank very rightfully says, the, the, the 40 lashes minus one, as it was called, with the cat of nine tails. And yeah, it's good to think. You know, you have um, a stick with a bunch of pieces of leather, uh, uh, and so they can sort of do the whip with it and really get sort of the wrist going. But on, attached to the leather, parts of bone and lead. Um, the lead softens the, uh, the flesh, the bone shards, rip it. Um, a bunch of people died just from that. He had that before. Um, often, in order to hasten the death, bring it along. Um, why do they do that? Because if you can't push up to fill your lungs, I mean, you, you technically die of asphyxiation when you're crucified because you could just no longer... Uh, fill your lungs full of air. Yeah, um, so it's actually an act of mercy, akin to tying a bag of gunpowder around your neck when you're being burned at the stake. Um, so let's move. Um, uh, why do we think about all that? Rowan Williams helps us. Former Archbishop of Canterbury calls it the in-between moment. Um, the work is out of our hands. When Christ is dead in the tomb. Um, we're thinking about what Friday night and Saturday must have been like, you know, not only like, you know, well, I guess that didn't happen. Um, now the 11 and the women and everybody else are like, you know, gosh, you know, they're coming for us. You know, of course they are. You know, you know now that Jesus is out of the picture, um, they're going to eliminate the, the remnant. And so they're just, they're just afraid and powerless and scared uh, and, uh, and, 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 and everything else besides. Um, and now the interminable waiting begins. Uh, the work is out of our hands, and all we can do is wait, breathe, look around. People sometimes feel like this when they've been up all night with someone who's seriously ill or dying, or when they've been through a nonstop series of enormously demanding tasks, a sort of peace, but more a sort of limbo, an in-between moment. For now, nothing more to do. Tired, empty, slightly numbed, we rest for a bit. And here's the sentence I love. Knowing that what matters now, uh, I'm sorry, knowing that what matters is now happening somewhere else. <laughs> knowing that what matters is now happening somewhere else. Um, God is yet on the move. Aslan is not yet done. There's a deeper magic yet at work, as C.S. Lewis would call it, the stone table. Um, uh, another way to hold into... Um, this interminable waiting um, on the back of your handout. Um, a poem by Marie Howe, uh, a New York poet. Um, I ran across this years ago. Um, uh, in fact, over Lent was talking with someone and it came back to mind, which is really interesting. Um, uh, uh, 
just this in-between time of the interminable waiting and how uh, when hope dies in the tomb, uh, yet there's a pregnancy in that moment. But it's a horrible, awful, terrible, wonderful pregnancy of time, this contrast of, of what time is like when you begin to glimpse time outside of time. Now, I just lost about half of y'all. The other half are like, oh, I know exactly what he's saying. Um, so just stay with me, and we're going to move past it. If it's not, if this isn't your cup of tea, because I've talked about this before, uh, and somebody was like, I just don't go there. And I was like, that's fine. Um, but other people, it really helps. So here's a poem which begins to describe what time outside of time might be like. Um, and she titles it, Part of Eve's Discussion, That Moment of the Reach. As Chad Bird, been listening to him again, uh, calls it, it's not so much the fall in Genesis 3, it's the reach, when you re- reaching for the apple. Um, uh, and that moment of the reach, part of Eve's discussion as we're thinking about Eve. It was like the moment when a bird decides not to eat from your hand and flies, just before it flies. The moment the rivers seem to still and stop because a storm is coming. But there is no storm, as when a hundred starlings lift and bank together before they wheel and drop, very much like the moment, driving on bad ice, when it occurs to you your car could spin, just before it slowly begins to spin, like the moment just before you forgot what it was you were about to say. It was like that, and after that. It was still like that, only all the time. I won't spend a lot of time here. Um, I don't know why this poem has stuck with me for about 20 years now. Um, But I think of it a lot, actually. It was like that, and after that, it was still like that, only all the time. Now just sort of hung. And I don't know if that's terrible, and I'm like, Lord, deliver me, or wonderful. Lord, it's good to be here. Let's build three shelters and stay. This is it. I think it's both. What it will be when time comes to an end and we live only in the now in front of God um, uh, as the new heavens and the new earth are given to us and and we and our resurrection bodies rise up. uh, Whatever it is, it won't have that pregnancy of awfulness. It will just be Wonder, awe, and praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Something like that. Um, only all the time in Marie Howe's phrase. So let's get to, um, uh, to Easter. Um, reading, going back on the first page. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Why well, he's still dead. Well, stay in the tomb. Stay in the tomb. Wall Street Journal had an article. I just saw the headline that said, Jesus descended to hell. Yep, 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 yep. Do you take that as separation from God, not literally descended into hell? No. There's two parts in the tomb, I think. There's, uh, and God rested. I mean, here's the seventh day. Here's Genesis all over again in one and two. And it was the sixth day, and it was good. Evening and morning, it was good. And now he's resting 
God is asleep, as it were. You know, the metaphor that Paul and others use so much for, uh, for death. Um, and then it doesn't go to the first day on Easter morning. It's the eighth day. The eighth day. We never hear about that. There's some idea that the eighth day is now the day without time. Now we're back to the new heavens and new earth and Rehau and everything else. And when Christ comes out of the tomb on Easter morning, He has defeated death. The death of death, the hell of hell, um, the devil of the devil. Christ in His resurrected body is now there on the eighth day, the day that will never end, the day of hope, the day of life everlasting and the renewal of all things to come into Revelation where there is now neither sighing nor pain nor hunger nor, nor thirst, where the sea is no more, where there's no more chaos, where there's no more uh, fracture. It's just the eighth day, the way it was supposed to be, restoration of all things. I think that's part of what's going on as we, 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 we force ourselves to sit with Christ dead in the tomb on the Sabbath, for on the seventh day he rested. Full stop. But of course, he wasn't just not doing anything. Um, Christ, who's the revelation of the Father all the time, harrows hell. That's the old-fashioned word for it, the harrowing of hell, going down. Whatever it is that's happening down there, where he's freezing the spirits in prison, you know, an obscure verse in First Peter, uh, where we get that idea. Uh, uh, something is there. What exactly that is, again, I think it's outside of time, and so that helps me where it's not so much, well, then he had 12 hours to go down. And he pre, you know, It's not that. And it's good to be laughed because God was like, okay, so it's not that, but I have an idea that he's going down and doing this ministry to people in torment, souls in torment in hell. It's like, well, if it's not bound to time, maybe it's also not quite that. And we just say like, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. I don't know. What was Christ doing on Holy Saturday as he, as he harrowed hell um, uh, so that its population is exactly what God wants it to be? That's a hard word to say, but I'm content there. You know, God, who's in hell? Lord, you know. <laughs> That's also what, what John says in Revelation when the angels say, you know, What's the question he's asked? I can't remember the question, but I remember the answer. He says, sir, you know. It's a good answer when an angel comes to you, uh, when the Lord comes to you and asks you something. He's like, you know. <laughs> you know, that's a good first start. So at least buy yourself some time. Um, did Christ harrow hell? Yes. Well, how did that happen? Sir, you know. You know, the Lord knows. I don't know. So that's Holy Saturday. The harrowing of hell. And on the seventh day, he rested um, and rose again on the eighth day, on the, the new day of the new era uh, uh, where hope will never die, where life will never die, the eighth day. So that's a good, I'm glad you said that, Mel. That's a good sort of walk out. What is Easter? Easter is the eighth day. It's the new day, the day that never ends. There's not a ninth day in that idea. It's the eighth day, and it's just always. So Luke 24, um, but on the first day of the week, or we might say the eighth day, um, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away. Um, remember Fred playing? And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They saw this body worse than that. And they said, there's no way that mangled mass of flesh got up. There's just no way. And so they start asking, uh, where did he go? Um, uh, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? The living, there's no way. Um, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. It's a good place to stop. So time uh, here on the first day, not the eighth day. Time marches on, and so we're going to have to end. Um, N.T. Wright, and you can read the John Updike poem, which is a great little poem, very accessible, just about the, uh, uh, the physical resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's he will be bodily resurrected, so too shall we and all those whom we love um, uh, will rise up in the new heavens and the new earth. What that will be like, we don't know but we'll be in a resurrection body um, in the same way that the disciples were kept from seeing Jesus in his resurrection body, which still had scars. So it's not, and he still ate food. He didn't sort of swallow the fish uh, as he was there restoring Peter on the shores of the lake uh, and it passed through a ghost where it just sort of fell onto the, uh, to the sand or something else like that. It went into a stomach. I mean, it was real. But somehow... It's not the same body that we have. I mean, it is new. All things be made new. And N.T. Wright, who um, is really, really, really good on some things, and then I don't like him on the new perspective on Paul, but that's another part. Uh, really, really, really good here um, on this. Uh, this this it was, an, it was an editorial in, the, I think, the Times, the London Times, maybe in The Guardian, I can't remember. Way back when, like 2010 or something like that. Nine, 2009. Um, three paragraphs, and we'll end here. Um, he's writing as a historian and a theologian, um, answering the question, uh, anticipating the 2,000 years of uh, arguments that Jesus wasn't really resurrected. I mean, it must have been something else. Um, he says, the only evidence that fits is that the Gospels are right, that Jesus was had to be crucified on the third day rise. Um, and so here's N.T. Wright. We'll give him the last word. Jesus of Nazareth was certainly dead by the Friday evening. Roman soldiers were professional killers and wouldn't have allowed a not-quite-dead rebel leader to stay that way for long. When the first Christians told the story of what happened next, they were not saying, I think he's still here in a spiritual sense, or I think he's gone to heaven. All these things have been suggested by people who have lost their historical and theological nerve. The historian must explain why Christianity got going in the first place, why it hailed Jesus as a Messiah, as a Messiah, despite his execution. This is really helpful. The Messiah, if they would have gone around, he was the Messiah. These things would have been fulfilled. He hadn't defeated the pagans or rebuilt the temple or brought justice and peace to the world, all of which a Messiah should have done and why the early Christian movement took the shape that it did. The only explanation that will fit, his evidence, fit the evidence is the one the early Christians insisted upon. He really had been raised from the dead. His body was not just reanimated. 
it was transformed so that it was no longer subject to sickness and death. Let's be clear. The stories are not about someone coming back into the present mode of life. They are about someone going on into a new sort of existence, still emphatically bodily, if anything more so. When St. Paul speaks of a spiritual resurrection body, that doesn't mean non-material, like a ghost. Spiritual is a sort of Greek word that tells you not what something is made of, but what is animating it. The risen Jesus had a physical body animated by God's life-giving spirit. Yes, says St. Paul, that same spirit is at work in us and will have the same effect and in the whole world. Friends, I hunger and thirst for that. So that's Easter. That's, that is the hope of Easter. Um, let's pray. Lord, take these words humbly and feebly offered and on your, uh, by your spirit, that same spirit um, who, uh, who gives life to all things and restores all things and will, uh, in the end, on the eighth day, um, uh, give us life, uh, a real life, everlasting. Um, Holy Spirit, take these words and, uh, and let your work be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you soon. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.